Welcome to The Bill Walton Show, featuring conversations with leaders, entrepreneurs, artists and thinkers. Fresh perspectives on money, culture, politics and human flourishing. Interesting people, interesting things. Welcome to The Bill Walton Show. I'm Bill Walton. We've all been rightly appalled by yet another school shooting, this time in Uvalde, Texas. There's so many troubling aspects to this. The number of children murdered, the uh, profile of the shooter, and the behavior of the law enforcement officers. As ever, there are cries to do something, which really means do something about guns. Yet the gun law now in Congress won't do anything to prevent future school shootings. There's a lot of evidence to show why it won't work, especially when existing gun laws appear to cost more lives than they save. Dr. John Lott, my guest today, knows more than almost anyone else about this subject. Uh, Dr. Lott is president of the Crime Prevention Research Center, a PhD in economics. He spent 25 years in research and is author of many books on the topics, including More Guns, Less Crime, which kicked off this debate, and gun control myths. Uh, John, let's start with this. You, you, you write that between 1950 and 1990, 2019, 94% of mass public shootings in the United States occurred in places where general citizens were banned from carrying guns. But the mainstream media, they continually refuse to mention when attack occurs in a gun-free zone. Right. Um, you know, I think that's Evaldi's yet, yet another one of hundreds and hundreds, hundreds of instances. Thoughts? No, exactly. I mean, uh, the Texas uh, hospital, I mean, the Oklahoma, Tulsa, Oklahoma uh, hospital shooting was another example. You read the manifesto for the Buffalo uh, mass murderer there. Uh, he goes and spends a great deal of time in his manifesto explaining why he wanted to pick the particular target he did. He wanted to go to a place where he knew victims there, the civilians, wouldn't have concealed handguns to go and protect themselves. Uh, we have many of those examples where we've gone and read through the diaries or other statements that these killers have made. These people may be crazy in some sense, but they're not stupid. Their goal is to try to go and get media coverage. And they know the more people they kill or wound, the more media coverage that they're going to get. Uh, the Sandy Hook killer, for example, uh, he had spent two and a half years studying mass public shootings over the previous 40 years. Uh, he had done what the police described as akin to a doctoral dissertation. Uh, among the things that he did was he would graph out the relationship between the number of people killed and the amount of media coverage that they got. According to one police report, uh, he wanted to go and kill more people than the Norway killer had killed. Uh, who had murdered just with guns, 67 people, because he wanted to get more international news coverage than the Norway killer had gotten. Well, the, well, the typical blowback on that is, well, these 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 are suicides. These these, these shooters are, are planning to commit suicide. What do right. they care? But what you're showing is that they really do care. That they want they, to live in infamy. Exactly. Uh, and they they drive the numbers up. The you know they'll get their whatever in heaven or not in heaven in hell. No, exactly. You know, you, you can't read these diaries or other things that these people leave and not come away with the, you know, obvious fact 
that they want to commit suicide, but they feel unappreciated. They, at some point along the line, people discovered that if they went and killed a lot of other people, uh, they would get attention. That people would know that they had been here. And, uh, and so if you're going to stop these attacks, what you have to do is try to take away the coverage that they're going to get. And I'm not talking about banning the First Amendment or something like that or rewriting it. Uh, but if you can get somebody there quickly uh, with a gun to stop them, uh, it can reduce how many people they think they're going to be able to go and kill. You know, it's... Um, the well, Buffalo, you, 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 you point out that even in, in right-to-carry states or in concealed carry states, that they still have very tiny pockets of, right. uh, of vulnerability, the, the so-called gun-free zones. Right. And, and most schools are in the gun-free zone category. And that's like putting a sign on the school saying, uh, this is open for target shooting. Right, exactly. Look, let's say, God forbid, somebody was threatening you or your family, was really seriously threatening you. Would you feel safer putting a sign in front of your home that said this home is a gun-free zone? Would the, uh, you know, prospective murderer uh, go and say, well, I can't go in there because I can't take my weapon in there because I'm not allowed to do it? No, what would happen is, is the exact opposite. It would actually serve as a magnet for that person to go in there because he knows he'd be relatively more successful. There would be an easier task for him to go and do it. But look, people know they would never put a sign like that up in front of their home. Well, if you're not going to put a sign like that up in front of your home, why would you put it up in front of other places that you really care about protecting? I understand the debate. You know, you read the legislative debates over things like allowing teachers or staff to be able to go and carry. And uh, there's a whole range of concerns. You know, what happens if the teacher accidentally shoots somebody? What happens if the teacher loses their temper and shoots somebody? What happens if the teacher loses control of a gun and the student gets a hold of it? Those are all possibilities. Well, it, uh, you, you know, you're, go ahead. Those are all po possibilities. So much of the gun control debate is about possibilities, about things that might happen. But we don't have to guess. We have 20 states that to varying degrees have teachers and staff caring. Some of them have had it for decades. And you can go and look to see. And you don't find one single example of any of these types of concerns actually occurring uh, in the thousands of schools that have teachers and staff caring. Well, you're, you're, you're making a case, a, st a statistical case. I think, to me, part of the problem is this. Most people are not very numeric. Most people don't do that well in math. And you're making a, if you look at the statistics, they overwhelmingly support the idea that guns make you safer, not, not, uh, not putting you at more risk. And what, we're see, what we see is when you get a bad anecdote, a kid kills himself with a, with a gun in a closet, then all of a sudden we're supposed to ban all guns in all closets and we're supposed to have trigger locks. And those laws that are supposed to protect people are, are aimed at incidences which might be one-tenth of one percent of the number of lives that might be saved by not having gun locks, by not having right. a lot of the laws. So even our existing gun laws, which are meant to so-called protect people, tend up end up hurting more people than they, uh, than they save. 
a lot of these are empirical questions to try to go and, and figure out what the net effect of these things are. I mean, I can look across countries, for example. Um, uh, we have data on what's called hot burglaries. Uh, these are burglaries that occur while the residents are in the home. Burglars in the United States spend about twice as long casing a home before they break in compared to their British counterparts. And what's the reason that they give? They, they're worried about getting shot. And one re way to try to protect yourself and prevent yourself from getting shot is make sure nobody's home because then nobody's there to fire a gun at The British burglars don't care about that too much and they also break in a lot more. So look, as you mentioned, I'm an economist. One of the things that's, there are a couple of ideas that economists have, but probably one of the simplest is just that if something's more costly, people do less of it. The greater the reward, the more they do it. And uh, if you make it costly and risky for criminals to commit crime, either with higher arrest rates or higher conviction rates, or in terms of the fact that a victim might be able to go and defend themselves, you can also make it risky for them to commit those crimes and reduce it. Well, I suffer from the same issue you do. I studied finance and statistics, and so I, I, I tend to look at these things in terms of cost, cost, cost trade-offs and benefits. And uh, I mean, your statistics were overwhelming in terms of uh, uh, the concealed carry, for example, allowing uh, guns in, in, in public spaces, which would prevent the uh, uh, mass shootings. But you've gotten a lot of pushback. You paid an enormous personal <clears throat> price for this. I mean, you were an economist uh, at the Federal Sentencing uh, Crime uh, Sentencing Commission, and then you were at Wharton uh, as a professor. Uh, and when you published your first book, More Crimes or More Guns, Less Crime, uh, everybody came out of the woodwork and began attacking you. What, tell me what that was like and who were the, who were the opponents and what were the lines of attack? Oh, it's a long story. I mean, I guess the most important part of the story is it basically ended my academic career at the University of Chicago. Um, my book, More Guns, Less Crime, came out in May 1998. In November 1998, uh, Mayor Daley uh, called up Hugo Sunstein, the president of the University of Chicago, and uh, spent I'm told 45 minutes talking about all the wonderful projects that the city wanted to do with the school. And then at the end of the conversation said, uh, but Lott's continued presence at the University of Chicago was gonna do quote, irreparable harm to the relationship between the city and the school. Um, a couple of days later, uh, I get called into Dan Fischel, um, meeting with him and another professor. And Dan basically said, look, John, you're probably one of the worst treated people in academia. I'm really sorry to have to do this, but uh, you know we're gonna have to let you go. And I said, this is in the middle of the school year. You can't do this in the middle of the school year. And uh, he said, you'll destroy my career. So anyway, and I could go through all the back and forth, but after a few days, uh, the agreement was that if I promised not to talk to the media anymore, about my work, uh, they would let me stay there through the end of the school year. Uh, and uh, so if you kind of look from like May when the book came out until November, I was doing a lot of media. Uh, and then I basically go radio silent. Um, 
you may not remember, but in 1999, there was a lot of push on new gun control laws. Um, uh, I would get a lot of calls from Max Boot, who was the op-ed editor at the Wall Street Journal at the time, yeah, saying, uh, John, you got to write a piece for us. Okay. So I ended up going to Yale. <clears throat> and then um, uh, the second year I was at Yale, I uh, was asked to testify in Hawaii on, uh, on uh, a couple gun registration licensing bills that they had. And uh, before I went there, I'm sorry if you wanted me to stop. Well, no, no, it's interesting. Oh. I, I just wanted to point out, I, I'm not doing this to put you through your personal hell again, but the cancel culture right. that we're seeing today with regard to, you know, pick a topic, vaccines, uh, you know, sure. different views on Ukraine, whatever. Uh, it started a way back, you know. Back oh, yeah, no. And you I were, mean, you were an just... early victim of that. Right. <clears throat> I'll, I'll finish the story about Yale, and then I'll give you like a story from the Los Angeles Times, which is also relevant. Um, so anyway, before I went out to testify in Hawaii, I, t I, I told the state legislators who were inviting me out, look, you're going to have the Honolulu police chief testify in favor of the bill. You don't want to sandbag them. You want them to be able to go and do research on this, but tell them in advance that there are two questions that you want to ask. One question is, how many crimes have you been able to solve uh, since registration licensing went into effect in 1960 in Hawaii? And the second one is, uh, how much does it cost each year to go and run the program? I basically knew the answer to the first question. And so anyway, he, he gets there, because I wanted to force him to be able to answer the question. I didn't want him to be able to say, well, I'll have to look at it and get back to you. Uh, so anyway, he he gets up there and testifies and he said he'd looked and he couldn't find a single crime that they've been able to solve as a result of licensing and registration. And, um, you know, I, I can kind of go through and explain why that's the case if you want, but the, but then he also was asked how much does it cost? And he said it costs about 50,000 hours worth of police time each year. So, you know, the trade-off is at least if you could point to thousands of crimes that you had solved or hundreds or a couple dozen or at least one or two, then there'd be some trade-off. But 50,000 hours of police time each year, that's a lot of crimes that you could have solved with 50,000 hours worth of police right. each year. So, you know, the cost benefit there, you could just feel the air go out of the room. But, you know, and one last story about the LA Times. I used to write somewhat regularly for the Los Angeles Times for like four or five years. And, uh, you know, I have a few pieces in a year or whatever. And then uh, 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 Nick Goldberg, who was the op editor at the time, uh, called me up and he said, you know, John, when we run your pieces, we get about 10 times more uh, mail and emails and phone calls than we get from anybody else, which is good, you know, they hate you, but uh, <laughs> it's good that we get that. Apparently, what had happened was uh, George Soros's Open Society and a couple other groups uh, would organize these types of campaigns that were there. And Nick put up with that. But then he said when they weren't getting a response from him, then they would start contacting the publisher. 
And the, and when he would run one of my pieces, the publisher would basically call him into the publisher's office and he'd have to spend like a half hour or an hour uh, dealing with that. And he said, John, I just don't have time to go and spend an hour in the publisher's office, explain to him why we ran your piece when we, when we do that. So he just said, we're not gonna be able to run your pieces anymore. And I've had that same type of story happen time after time in different types of outlets across the country. You know, so, and the thing is people didn't have like specific things saying lot is made a factual mistake or something like that. They just would say, you have to stop, you know, it's horrible that you're running as pieces. And, uh, <clears throat> um, Anyway, just uh, uh, well, let's let's speculate. You're watching the Bill Walton show. I'm here with Dr. John Lott, who's a very, very thoughtful uh, expert on the effect of uh, gun control on, on, on crime and guns and crime. And we're talking about that. And we're also talking about the incredible blowback he got for uh, coming out with what I believe is the truth about guns. You know, John, you've had you've been at this now for almost three decades, uh, I want to speculate. I mean, what are the, what is it? Is it just people are, are uncomfortable with guns and they're afraid of guns and so therefore anything having to do with it is, is verboten or is there something deeper going on about, is it a second amendment issue where they really don't want America to be armed at all and they being, I guess, the elites uh, and is this how much of this do you think is political, and how much of you think is just uh, personal aversion to uh, to guns? I think there are a lot of aspects to this question. Uh, as a general point, I think there's a fundamental difference between conservatives and liberals in terms of who they trust to make decisions. So you take something like Obamacare, all right, uh, or how liberals approach healthcare issues. Obamacare, they basically tell you exactly what the insurance has to cover. They don't trust the consumers to decide what you're gonna be covered. The only choices you have is the size of the deductible that you, you can pick between the different types of plans that are there. <clears throat> you know, a conservative basically would say, look, you know, uh, a 65 year old woman probably doesn't need to be covered for childbirth, you know. Uh, if you want to go and have, you know, alcoholism covered or something like that or other issues, that's your choice, you know, and you pay for it. It's more costly to have those, all those other things covered. But, you know, you may have other things you want to go and do with your money. And uh, <clears throat> but, you know, if you don't trust individuals to make decisions on even what their health insurance is going to cover, are you going to trust them with weapons? I mean, in some sense, uh the ultimate thing you can trust people with is in terms of whether you trust them with a weapon or not. Well, you point and, out. Uh, go ahead. You point out that this again, getting back to the statistical argument that the 25 or 30 million uh, concealed carry permit holders in the United States have an incredible record of safety, and they're virtually never the ones that uh, commit murder or a gun crime. Right. Well, I mean, the type of person who's willing to go through the process. I mean, if you're going to go and commit a crime, why are you going to bother going through the process, paying a fee, you know, uh, doing the background check, 
getting training if it's required. Uh, you're just going to go and commit the crime. So it's, uh, you know, it's my guess is the whole gun debate that we have right now would be very different if the media would cover a few things differently. One would be once in a while when we have these gun-free zones attacks mentioned that that's occurring. Uh, it's often the easiest thing for the reporters to find out. Usually they'll go and talk about how people obtained a gun to begin with. Uh, or what gun was used, frequently they're wrong. But, uh, you know, for something like the Texas school shooting, I was able to find that out within literally just a few minutes uh, by just going to the website for the school to go and see their firearms policy that was there. Uh, you know, the same with the Tulsa hospital shooting. So, you know, these are not difficult things to go and find out, but you will search in vain uh, to find those types of cases. You know, other instances would be on our website at crimeresearch.org. We have literally dozens of cases over the last few years where people with permanent concealed handguns have stopped what otherwise would have been a mass public shooting. Uh, but you will find that those usually only get local news coverage. And the few times that they do get national news coverage, the national news coverage often botches the story. Uh, so, you know, we have the Parkland shooting. Few people would know that just a few months after that, there was this, an attempted school shooting at an elementary school gathering uh, that was very close to Parkland. Uh, it was at a park right next to the school. A uh, man came up, started firing his gun. Uh, hundreds of students, parents, teachers were there. Fortunately, there was a vendor there with a permanent concealed handgun who stopped the attack. It only got local news coverage. Uh, you look at the Pulse uh, nightclub shooting, uh, which at the time was the worst mass public shooting in U.S. history. Uh, a week later, there was a similar attack at a nightclub in South Carolina. Three people were shot. The fourth person was being shot at when a permit holder pulled out his gun and seriously wounded the attacker. Again, only local news coverage. The difference between Florida and South Carolina, Florida is one of 10 states that banned permitted concealed handguns in establishments that got more than 50% of their revenue from alcohol. South Carolina was one of the 40 states that allowed people to be able to have that. You would think both Parkland and the Pulse nightclub shooting were still getting coverage when these other events happened. And you would think, geez, we've just had another school shooting that ended very differently nearby or a nightclub shooting that ended very differently that it might get coverage, so, so, but they so, don't so, do it. So it seems like all these laws are the, are the costs of good intentions or, or uh, sure. as an economist, the law of unintended consequence or the... Uh, the seen and the unseen. I mean, you, you think right. you're doing something good, you're going to ban guns and bars, well, that'll make it safer. Well, in fact, it does just the opposite. Uh, let, me, let, me try, let me touch a third rail here, if I might. Uh, it seems to me, as I read through your work, that there's an awful lot of distortions in average gun statistics in America, and that when you look specifically at what's happening in America's inner cities, right. The, that most of the gun crimes are black-on-black -black murders. And so when people talk about average deaths or average deaths of children even, they say, well, there are 15 children killed by guns every day. Well, in that, they, they include teenagers. 
and right. most of those most of those uh, gun crimes are are gangland murders of exactly. kids in their teens. So we've got this notion that there's happening everywhere, but it's not happening everywhere. It's happening in the inner cities disproportionately. Oh yeah, no, um, murders in the United States are very heavily concentrated, much more so than in other countries. <clears throat> you have over half the murders in the United States take place in about 2% of the counties, that's 60 out of the 3,140 counties. If you ever look at murder maps for those counties, what you'll find is that about two thirds of those murders occur in 10 block areas. So murders are very heavily concentrated and they're very, very heavily gang related. People fight against each other over controlling drug turf that's there. And you may have collateral damage, you know, when you hear in Chicago, uh, you know, some 10 year old girl that's been shot because but drive by shooting. Well, the drive by shooting is almost invariably related to gangs fighting against each other with a drug turf. And there was some little girl that simply got caught in the crossfire that's there. Uh, you know, we right now we hear all these statistics about the number of mass shootings in the United States. And they'll say that there's been over 200 of them. Uh, usually the way it's phrased to begin with is people will kind of bring up the Texas school shooting or Buffalo shooting or others. And then they'll say there've been 200 mass shootings, making people think that there's basically 200 and some of those types of shootings. And that's simply very misleading because, um, uh, you know, any type of death is bad, but the vast majority, I'd say in the high 80% range of those mass shootings that they talk about are gangs fighting against each other over drug turf. Is that bad? Yeah. But the causes and solutions for why gangs fight against each other over drug turf are dramatically different than these types of mass public shootings where somebody in a way to commit suicide, but in a way to commit suicide in order to get uh, media attention and have people know that they were there, causes and solutions are dramatically different. There are a lot of, uh, well, we've had 187 uh, kids murdered over the last 40, 50 years in school shootings. And there, this year in Chicago alone, there've been 254 people killed. Uh, uh, right. In Chicago, and and you know, Rich Daly is no longer mayor, but the mayor of Chicago is now worse, and it's just so uh, um, maddening that these big city mayors want to have these gun control laws when they know the most the people most hurt by them are residents of the inner city, right. inner city, you know, bl blacks, Hispanics, whatever. Those are the ones most hurt, and they're hurt in many different ways. I mean, it's not just the direct victims of crimes, but who owns many of the businesses that are, are shut down or destroyed? Who works in those businesses? Who shops in those businesses? Who owns houses in those areas whose property value is knocked down as crime rates go up in those areas? These are overwhelmingly relatively low income Blacks and Hispanics that are being harmed in many different ways there. And, you know, you mentioned daily uh, when uh, the younger Daly became mayor, uh, the arrest rate for murders were about 62% in the city. When he left, it was down to 30%. Uh, when Rahm Emanuel, who uh, 
ended up leaving being mayor, it was down to 20%. It's been down to like the low teens uh, since then. You know, and there are lots of things that they've done which have made the job of arresting people much more difficult. So one of the things that's happened that Rahm Emanuel did was that whenever a police officer would stop and talk to somebody, they'd have to fill out paperwork. This is an agreement that he made with the ACLU. You have two pages, legal size pages of paperwork, talk about who you stopped, why you stopped them, where you talked to them about, what you talked to them about. And it would take like 45 minutes to an hour and 15 minutes to go and fill out the paperwork that's there. So you're a police officer and you talk to four people in the morning, your afternoon is taken up filling out paperwork. What does that do to your incentive to even go and talk to people that's there? What does that do in terms of taking police officers off the street there? You know, they've had this now for years. And as far as I know, nothing's ever come of them going and so, taking all that paperwork there. You know, so, the ACLU thought, I guess, that they'd be able to bring lots of lawsuits and stuff with the information that they were gathering. But, you know, again, this is the type of thing where there's been huge costs in terms of removing police from the streets. Uh, you know, the thing is, so many Democrats claim that they care about poor and minority individuals. And yet they go and do things like this no. that really have real bad consequences. So in the and just one quick point, and that is we're living in a strange world where we have people who want to make sure that law enforcement's not able to go and defend people. And those same people don't want to let the individuals themselves defend themselves. You know, you at least think that there'd be some trade-off there. If we're not going to let the police defend people, at least our law enforcement, prosecutors, at least let the people themselves defend themselves, but they won't let either occur. Well, I'm going to, I keep wanting, I mean, is there a third rail? Is there a fourth rail? I mean, I, I, I think a lot of this is political. If you look at the left-right divide and who owns guns and who doesn't own guns, it looks like a lot of this is aimed at, at taking guns from conservatives. And, uh, um, you know, it's a little bit like the vaccines were used uh, in the Pentagon to drive a lot of people out of special forces because they didn't want to vax. And it was almost a litmus test for who had the correct political beliefs or, or did not. And the guns are, are, are just, a, just a, a piece, a subset of that larger agenda, I think. Right. Um, but they well, let's go to let's go to the law enforcement and the, and the, and the police because one of the things I mentioned at the outset, the behavior of the law enforcement officers in Texas, in Uvalde, was was strange, and I haven't studied it and I don't have the expertise to figure what they should have done or shouldn't done. Is there any anything that because we've been demonizing police the way we have that they were less likely to go in and do something? Yeah, I don't know if that. I, my own belief is probably people are human and we like to all think that if we were in that type of heroic situation, we'd run in, we'd save the day that's yeah. there. Not everybody's like that, you know, and, uh, and we may not be when it actually comes down to it. Uh, you know, the bizarre thing was, I mean, there were police were waiting outside for over an hour. Uh, it finally ended because an off duty, uh, a border patrol agent against orders went in 
and uh, rescued his family that was inside and killed the, the murderer that was there. But I mean, you have these calls from these young kids on their cell phones and they're you know, pleading with somebody to come in and help them. And the murderer there is hearing them make phone calls and then killing the kids. Yeah. And it just uh, rips your heart out to know that the officers were out there. But look, here's one of the reasons why it's important to have teachers and staff be able to go and carry. And that is, it's one thing to require somebody to have to run in to a dangerous situation, okay, to run towards the gunfire. But if you're a teacher or a staff person who's in the classroom, you have no choice. Either you go and defend yourself and your students that are there or you're dead. It's not like you just can go and hide behind the desk that's there and everything's going to be fine. And so your incentive to actually go and and use your ability to whatever weapon you have to stop the attack there, you have a very strong incentive to do that. And so at least a lot stronger than somebody from the outside to do it. And I have to say, <clears throat> one of the things, um, you know, people point to like the Buffalo case, uh, the grocery store where there was an armed guard that was there. And a lot of the gun control advocates will say, well, see, this proves that a good guy with a gun can't stop a bad guy with a gun. You know, I've been writing about this for years. It's pretty frustrating, but there's, if you have one person in uniform guarding a place, they have an incredibly difficult job. You know, these That's attacks. Also, that, 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 that person is also known as the target. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know, <laughs> having a, one guy in uniform is kind of like a neon sign above him that says, shoot me first. Because if, if, the, if the killer believes that you're the only person with a gun there, who does he go after first? The, in the Buffalo uh, attack, he had already cased the grocery store. He knew where the guard was stationed. The first person he killed was the guard. You know, if you have uh, one police officer at a school and he's in uniform, you know, he's a very boring job. He's there day after day. The odds that any one school is going to get hit is incredibly low. Uh, you know, and you don't have eyes in the back of your head. The attackers there have real tactical advantages there in terms of the timing, uh, you know, who they go after first. Uh, you know, they can wait for you to leave the area or they can go and pick another target or they can take that person out first. And, <clears throat> so, you know, so it's just, if I were to make one plea, and that is because right now the Senate is talking about uh, yeah. uh, having a funding for one police officer in each school, my plea would be, please mandate that the person not be in uniform. Please mandate that the person uh, blend into the school. You can have them as a PE coach or as a janitor or something. Like an, air like, an air like an air marshal on an airplane. Yeah, something like that, but make yeah. it and, ha and have signs out in front of the school that said, rather than a gun-free zone, say, you know, a selective people at the school uh, have guns, concealed handguns, and we'll use them to protect the students and others here at the school. But you don't want to make the person identifiable. 
So sticking with the Congress and Senate and what's in this bill, have you done any work on the red flag, uh, red flag laws? Yeah. What tell us? Tell, tell right. me, what tell us about that? Well, I don't think most people kind of know what the existing laws are, even before you have red flag laws. All the states and the federal government have what's called involuntary commitment type rules. And what happens is, is that if you are concerned about somebody being a danger to themselves or others, people call up the police, the police will go and investigate. If the police believe that they have, quote, a reasonable suspicion, which is like a 20% probability that, uh, that there's a real concern there, they can take the person in for a mental health evaluation. Uh, you'll have, depending upon the state, any place from one to three mental health professionals that will evaluate the individual. And then if the mental health professionals believe that there is a concern there, they will. there can be an immediate court hearing, literally an immediate court hearing. And uh, if you can't afford a lawyer, one is provided for you. Uh, and then a judge has a range of options. The judge could say, look, I'm concerned, but if you agree to go and seek mental health counseling, uh, then you know, come back in a couple of weeks and we'll reevaluate the situation. They could take away the person's guns. They could go and involuntarily commit the person. There's a whole range of options that they have there. What red flag laws do is they essentially gut all those protections. Uh, what happens is, is that um, uh, a complaint's made, a judge sees the written complaint in front of them. There's no testimony. There's no cross-examination. The person who the complaint is being leveled against doesn't even know that a complaint has been made. The first he'll know about it is when the police show up at 5 a.m. in the morning at his house to go and retrieve his guns. And then um, within a month or so, there'll be a hearing. Uh, no legal counsel is automatically provided to you. There's no mental health experts involved in the process in any of the states that are there. These red flag laws are overwhelmingly used for concerns about suicide. And the only thing that happens to you if you lose is your guns are taken away. Now, there are a couple of points to make on this. One is if you're concerned about somebody being suicidal, if you're really concerned about it, is simply taking away a person's guns a serious response to this? I mean, there's so many different ways people can commit suicide right. there. If you're right. concerned about it, there you better get mental health care professionals involved, and you better maybe even think about involuntarily committing the guy if you're if you're doing that. And but yet uh, these laws do not require, do not have mental health care professionals involved. And the other thing is um, the costs. I've talked to lawyers involved in these types of hearings. The legal costs you're talking about are often ten thousand dollars. So let's say you're somebody who has a complaint against them. You want to keep your guns. But the only thing that happens to you if you lose is you lose your guns. And you're, you have a choice. I may want to keep my guns, but is it worth $10,000 to go and change the odds? And so the vast majority of people who go through the process there don't hire a lawyer to go and deal with this. So I know the Senate is talking about uh, having uh, uh due process type protections in there where there would be a hearing and stuff that's fine but
but it still doesn't get to the basic problem with red flag laws, and that is only concentrating on guns as a solution. I understand why gun control people want to frame it that way. They want to make people think, well, if you only take away the gun, then the problem's solved. But, uh, you know, unfortunately, I think uh, it can actually be counterproductive sometimes. Go ahead. Well, I just wanted to, I, I wanted I want to just see if I can't boil this down. It's the old CEO in me. I, I can't. Academic, I go on too long sometimes. I, I love academics. That's why I'm <laughs> part of the reasons I'm doing the show to get to talk to smart people like you. Uh, but it seems like the essence of this is you if you aim at the perpetrator or aim at the gun, the instrument, you don't end up producing any result. As you, exactly. I, think, I think you've written there are two and a half million schizophrenics in the United States. Right. And half of the mass murders we've seen were already under um, some sort of uh, uh, psychiatric exactly. care. So that doesn't produce anything. Yet if you focus on your ability, people's ability to defend themselves, which would be concealed carry, and having, right. having plainclothes police in a school, and you know, just a plainclothes policeman solves a problem where people say, "Oh, we can't give teachers concealed carry." Well, if you had one play, one plain clothes, clothes cop in there, it seems to me like ability to defend uh, knocks out ninety nine percent of the, uh, the the cases that would occur. Is that right. is that a fair summary of? Uh, no, I think that's an excellent summary of uh, of the, what I've been saying. Yeah, no, I think that's an excellent summary. How can Look, we get the word the out? Who are, who are allies in this? I've seen, I'm seeing you, and I, I've, I've been unbelievably impressed with them. I mean, your books are fascinating. <laughs> you look at them on Kindle, and it'll say you've got an hour left to go. Okay, that's fine. But then you look at the, the larger version of it, and you've got like two-thirds of the book is, is research and footnotes and, and cross-references and studies. I mean, you've, you've done more analysis of this than anybody on the other side of the gun control debate. Well... <clears throat> I don't know. I mean, it's been a long process. But, who, else, uh, who else do we have on our side? Let me see if I can't boil it down. Who, how, do we, how do we develop a, a, a consensus to get your point of view into more people's uh, uh, minds? Right. Well, uh, it's an interesting problem. And that is um, uh, there's a lot of research uh, that supports my side, academic research, but people Academics are afraid to go and speak out on this publicly uh, because of the backlash that they'll get in many different ways. And, uh, you know, so they publish papers uh, and I can point to the papers. But, you know, the thing is, the media um, has really changed over the last 10 or 20 years. Um, uh, so, like, There'll be a paper that gets published that shows that claims that concealed carry is bad. And uh, there was another paper uh, that had gotten published in a peer-reviewed journal even before but, that but, paper came out. They but, used but, the when they said but when they said concealed carry is bad, I don't see anybody that has the kind of numbers that you have. The thing is, when you do these studies, you're seeing how crime rates change in states that are changing their laws relative to all the other states that are there. And so the implicit assumption is, is that when a state changes its law during the period that you're looking at, 
you know, adopting concealed carry, you're seeing a much bigger increase in the number of concealed carry permits in that state relative to the comparison groups that you have. The problem is, is that the later states are much more restrictive. Some of these states kind of got dragged kicking and screaming into having concealed carry, like Illinois, for example, was the last state to do it. It costs $450 to go through the process to get a concealed carry permit, 16 hours of training. Uh, you're banned for most of the time for getting training in Chicago. Uh, you know, you can't take it on public transportation. Uh, all sorts of restrictions that are there. And so, you know, you compare uh, Illinois to Indiana, neighboring Indiana, uh, you know, like 22% of the adult population is a concealed carry permit. In Illinois, it's like 4%. Well, it's simple. In Illinois, it costs $450. In Indiana, it costs $12.95. And you also see a change in the mix of who gets it. And Illinois is much more wealthy, suburban whites. In Indiana, it's much more inner city poor people that get concealed carry permits. But <clears throat> the point is, is that um, uh, you have to really look at the percent of the population with permits, okay? Not just whether the law gets changed because when you have these late states make it very difficult, they had an increase in permits, but you had an even larger increase in permits for the comparison group for the earlier years that are there. And so there, you know, you would expect a bigger drop in crime for the early states, even though you think you're measuring just the change that, you know, what they would, academics call a dummy variable for, you know, just a one zero variable for the states is there. And so for 20, over 20 years, I've been trying to argue, look guys, when you look at this stuff, you really need to, these laws vary a lot across states. Uh, you really need to look at the percent change in the population with permits there to get an idea of how the risk for criminals is changing. And even better, look at what population groups, because if I have more permits for wealthy whites that live in the suburbs who aren't likely to be victims of violent crime, I'm not going to see the same impact on crime as I'm going to see if I have people who live in high crime urban areas uh, right. getting permits. Right. And and so. So you but, really you can't know, compare. You uh, can't compare Illinois with its demographics with Indiana and its demographics and see see how that how much effect it would have. Right because it's not helping the people that uh, it should help. So I've tried to make that argument, <clears throat> but it's kind of like impervious to some people. And it's just, to me, some of these things just seem so obvious, but it's just, uh, um, you know, you do what you can on it. It's, but the other, the thing is also just the media It's just, you know, even 10 years, 20 years ago, uh, there used to be this ethic in journalism where you'd interview people on both sides of an issue. You read the New York Times and Washington Post and stuff. But it just, you know, I, I talk to my kids and I say, you know, uh, we'll be talking, one of them will go and say, well, dad, look at this article in the New York Times. And I'll say, yeah, okay, I read it. And, uh, and I said, and I'll say to him, do you really believe that there's only people on one side of the issue that this reporter could have interviewed? Your, the reporter could have interviewed your dad, for example, you know, as somebody who would have given something on the other side of this because it'd be doing something with law enforcement or something. 
And it's just, you know, I, if, I think a lot of people come away now these days uh, thinking that there's really no argument to be made on the other side for these things. The thing is, even when reporters would interview people on both sides, they had lots of games that they could play. If you go and interview somebody for a half hour, there's certain things that the person being interviewed would make stronger statements than other statements. You could pick the weakest thing that you would put in there to say, well, I interviewed both sides. When I, you mentioned you looked at my book, The Bias Against Guns, one of the things that I looked at there, I'd gone through and looked at reporting on different things, the New York Times, for example, when they would go and uh, do a report, a news story on a new study on gun control. First of all, they'd only do news articles on gun control studies that kind of showed what they wanted to show. But then they would still interview people on both sides. But on the gun control side, they'd interview a couple of academics. On the, on the other side, they'd interview somebody from the NRA and a gun store deal. And it's kind of like, you know, so you say, well, I interviewed people on both sides. But I mean, your reader's going to think, well, I have a couple, you know, possibly unbiased academics, but a gun store dealer and the NRA. And the NRA. Oh, my God, the NRA. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, I mean, how is that balanced? Well, you know, it's it's happening everywhere, John. I, you know, the law schools now, Yale, you were there in the law school. Now there's a big movement to saying they don't have to defend all all type clients it used to be everybody was entitled to advocacy and a lawyer and now they're saying well if these people hold unacceptable views they're not entitled to representation that's a lot like About what's 50. going on here right um, well it's oh. just part of the same thing well i'm going to take i'm going to take up that we, we we've got to get the word out we've got to get more people because your your books are 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 um are unbelievably persuasive now we can find you on on Guncontrol.org? Oh, no, on crimeresearch.org. Crimeresearch.org. Crime, crime and then you're, you're appearing a lot on uh, a lot of radio stations around the country. But I, I'm, I'm very, very happy you could be here. Uh, unfortunately, we've got to wrap up. And I think you're going to catch a plane to go on vacation. So I want to, I want to let you get to that. So anyway, thanks for joining, joining John. And I think we'll continue with, uh, with this, I hope, sometime in the future when the next... Uh, the next big thing comes up. Uh, this well, has thank been the you Bill, for your time. Well, thank you. This has been the Bill Walton Show. And as always, you can find us on Substack and YouTube and Rumble and all your major, wherever you get your podcast, Apple, Spotify. Uh, and hope you found this uh, illuminating. I certainly did in doing the research. And I think there we need to think about guns differently. And we need to think about guns in a way that says, say they can make us safer and they're not and they're not that dangerous. So stay tuned for what's true, what's right, and what's next. Thanks. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Want more? Click the subscribe button or head over to thebillwaltonshow.com to choose from over 100 episodes. You can also learn more about our guest on our Interesting People page. And send us your comments. We read everyone and your thoughts help us guide the show. If it's easier for you to listen, check out our podcast page and subscribe there. In return, we'll keep you informed about what's true, what's right, and what's next. Thanks for joining.